Well, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. A very familiar passage. One of these passages we read often at Christmas, but we don't ever talk about and we don't really learn what is going on there. We ended last time in Isaiah chapter 6, the passage about the, the people being unwilling, unbelieving, the nation's heart hard against the Lord, not listening to what Isaiah was going to say, and that there was going to come a time of judgment at a time of exile where the people were going to be put out of the country. And in between chapter 6 and chapter 9, we have a turning over of kings. King Uzziah died. That was stated at the beginning of chapter 6. His son Jotham uh, goes into power and out of power. He's not mentioned at all in the book of Isaiah. And it picks up in chapter 7 with Ahaz, who is after Jotham. Ahaz, as, as is recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 28, was a terrible, wicked king. A king that made uh, iron images of the Baals that burned his sons and the offerings of Molech and was more wicked than the people that they drove out of the nation before they got there. And the Lord gave him over into the hands of his enemies, the Syrians, who defeated him. In chapter 9, what we see is the Lord speaking of the restoration of the nation. At the end of chapter 6, it talks about the people being put into exile. And many times through the, the prophet Isaiah, it's going to talk about the people coming back from their time of exile. But Isaiah is continually going beyond the period of restoration, which is a restoration of the nation, but is not yet a coming of the Messiah. And what Isaiah keeps looking forward to is beyond just the restoration of the nation to the sending of a Messiah that will be the salvation of not just the nation of Israel, but the salvation of all nations, all who will put their faith and trust in this Messiah who is yet to come. And so here in chapter 9, Isaiah is speaking about that Messiah who is yet to come. I'll read to you this is a little paragraph from John Calvin about the way in which Isaiah treats the speaking of the return of the nation in salvation, but then speaking forward about Christ as our Savior. The prophet, when he speaks of bringing back the people from Babylon, does not look to a single age, but includes all the rest till Christ came and brought the most complete deliverance to his people. The deliverance from Babylon was but a prelude to the restoration of the church and was intended to last not for a few years only, but till Christ should come and bring true salvation, not only to their bodies, but likewise to their souls. When we shall have made a little progress in reading Isaiah, we shall find that this is the way his ordinary custom is." And so we'll see this this morning. The people reading this are thinking about a Messiah to come to bring them back to a place of salvation as a nation. But Isaiah is looking beyond that with the purposes of the Lord. He is speaking about both the deity and the humanity of Messiah, the Christ. That's what Christ means. It means Messiah. And he is also speaking about the nature of the kingdom of God. I was really impacted when we went through the Gospel of Luke some time ago and taught chapter by chapter all the way through that, how much Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. 
We don't talk about the kingdom of, law, of God much anymore. It's not something that's readily on our tongues. But Jesus was constantly proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that from all the way, way back in Isaiah chapter 9. So please stand with me this morning as we honor the Lord and read his word from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into uh, contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the later time, he was made glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we begin this morning with a little bit of geography and as we're going to see constantly in the book of Isaiah, quotations from the book of Isaiah in the gospels. And so it begins with this region, discussing this region, that in former times he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and, and the area of Galilee uh, near the Jordan. And so if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 4 we have a quotation directly of this passage right after the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And so it's important to understand that the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, the Galilee region, is the northwestern shore region of the Sea of Galilee. And if you look at a map of Israel, the Sea of Galilee uh, is the headwaters where the, 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 it's fed in from there, but then it goes down the Jordan River and then it goes to the Sea of uh, the Dead Sea. And so you see those two big markers on uh, any map that you look at in Israel. And the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus grew up on. That northwestern corner is the very region that the prophet Isaiah is speaking about. And that is where Jesus grew up, which is not by accident. And Jesus speaks directly about his ministry in this area as fulfilling this prophecy at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and following. Now when he heard, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, and the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, 
on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is the light ultimately that shines in the darkness? It's Jesus. It's Jesus and his message. Jesus comes to the very region that he said the light would first break out and it would begin in that region. And the the glory of Christ that begins to break forth is in his preaching. So often people see preaching as a negative thing that somehow the miracles were first, but the miracles were subsequent. They were to confirm the preaching. The preaching is the light. It's the first light. And it's so interesting that, that the light of the gospel begins with a call to what there in verse 17? A call to repentance. Often we don't see a call to repentance as good news or, or anything that is positive. But for people to recognize that they are sitting in darkness, they have to see their own situation. And repentance is the realization that you are in fact sitting in the darkness and you need to come out of that to a different place. And so Jesus begins to awaken the souls of people by proclaiming to them their own sinfulness, but not leaving them there, calling them from death into life that they might know who he is. It is into this that Jesus comes. Jesus proclaims in John chapter 8 that he is the light of the world. It's a beautiful, beautiful analogy of who Jesus is, and it comes into perfect focus in this place, that the world is in darkness, The people are sitting in deep darkness, and Jesus comes into this place and reveals to them who he is, and it is like light shining into the darkness. And he says very specifically that as his light shines into the darkness, Those that will hear his voice and follow him will not walk in darkness, but will walk in the light. There is no more darkness for those who are following after Christ Jesus. And there is another passage in 2 Corinthians that relates to this that is just too good to to not mention here this morning. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and it says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Let me read that again and walk you through it. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, which is speaking all the way back to the beginning, to creation, when God said, let there be light, and there there was darkness, and the Lord God himself is the source of light. He shines light into darkness and has shown his light into our hearts. Because we must understand that the darkness that is over the land when Jesus is coming into it, the darkness that is over the land in the time of Isaiah is not a physical darkness. It is a spiritual darkness. It is a darkness of the heart. It is a brokenness. It is a separation from God. It is anxiety. It is a lack of peace as we're going to see Jesus comes in bringing to peace to a situation of chaos, of rebellion, of hatred towards God. He is doing all these things and it is a shining of light into the heart, into the soul, a place of darkness. But the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where is it displayed in this particular occasion? In the face of Jesus Christ. That is really astonishing and worth thinking about. 
that Jesus, as the exact representation of God, he is divine, he is God. He comes full of grace and truth amongst the people, and his face is light. He is light come into darkness. One day, dear people, we will see his face. By faith, we will enter into glory and we will see his face. The people that Isaiah is addressing have not seen the face of Jesus. They are told that one day light will come into darkness and it will shine and it will shine in this region and it will illuminate the darkness that the the darkness and the death of people's souls might pass into life. But there were a people that had the chance to be near him and to see his face. And we know now that he has ascended bodily into heaven. And there are many things that we look forward to in heaven, but the greatest thing about heaven will be to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And we should look forward to that. We should long for it. It is a part of what it means to long for the kingdom of God that we might understand what it is that light has shone into darkness and that we might one day behold it in the full glory of the presence of Jesus Christ. Well, this is a little bit about the glory of God. People that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah's listeners are called to hope in him who they have not seen. And it is the same with us today. We are called to hope in Christ Jesus whom we have not seen. Verse 6, it goes on to tell them that a child will be born. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's very important there to, to not miss the us part. Why was Jesus sent? He was sent to save the lost. He was sent to us that we who were seated seated in darkness, we who were lost in our trespasses and sins and separated from God, that we might have a savior, that we might be able to have peace with God, that we might be able to enter in. It is for our sakes that Jesus entered the world. Unto us a son is given. If you turn in your Bible one page back, you will see the, the... passage in chapter 7 verse 14 that is so important as to what type of son will be given. As we're talking this morning about the, the, both the divinity and the humanity of this Savior who is to come, we see in chapter 7 verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The son that will be given will be divine. He will not be born in a normal way. He will be born of a virgin, which is a supernatural work of God, and yet he will be born as a man, which speaks to the frailty of humanity. And both the full deity of God and the full humanity of what it means to be a person are mysteriously bound up together in the person of Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin, but born into the world, into the frailty of this world. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Government and upon the shoulder. The shoulder, something being on your shoulder is a a speech of a burden. When we carry something, we put it on our shoulders so we can carry the weight of it and go forward with it. Government is a burden. The government of all humanity 
is an impossibly huge burden. No human being has ever been able to govern all the world. Right now, the current world population stands at 7.9 billion people. That is an impossibly large number of people, and it just continues to rise and rise every year. The scriptures tell us that one day, Jesus will take upon himself the governance of all that there is. In one way, he certainly has that now, but in the, in the nature of the coming kingdom of God and the growing kingdom of God, it is not yet complete. It is an impossibly large burden, and it has always been this way. Every person that tries to govern a large number of people can do it for a while, and then they grow old and tired, and they cannot do it anymore. And kings of old would die. Rulers now, you look at their, their picture from when they started to five years later, and all their hair is turned white, and they've got wrinkles all over their face. They just can't do it. It's a young man's game. It has always been a quest of humanity to have perfect human government. We've done all kinds of different things to try to govern ourselves and to expand the governance of one person. We think of Alexander the Great, the Greek leader, who tried to expand the governance of Greece into a much larger area, and to expand Greek culture, Greek language, Greek religion, and it ultimately failed, and it was taken over by the Romans, and the Romans spread their way of government to the largest kingdom ever in the history of the world. And they built roads everywhere and regulated trade. And they finally reached that Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, this incredible time where this huge kingdom seemed to be functioning perfectly. But of course, it didn't last very long until it fell to pieces. And we end up with the kings, the lesser kings of the Middle Ages, all fighting each other to death, literally. And there is no peace. And then we enter into a time of a different sort of governance, really inaugurated here in this country. The idea of Republican democracy, a government by the people, of the people, for the people. And I love what Winston Churchill says about this. Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time before it. <laughs> it's a, uh, anybody that's been a part of trying to do this, like it's a mess. It's a, it's a difficult thing. It's a still, it's a constant struggle. It doesn't stop being a struggle. Because people are sinful and this world is fallen. And until the Lord Jesus returns again and takes all the governments of the world and places that authority upon his shoulders, there will not be peace. And so it's an odd thing, but ultimately the hope of every Christian is monarchy. Isn't that strange? But it's not the monarchy of a person it's the monarchy of Jesus, King Jesus, the perfect king with a perfect heart, with all power who will never die. And under the government of Jesus, there will be an increase of peace and justice that will never end. Jesus is the perfect king who is yet to come. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we carry on, Isaiah goes on to give names and titles to this king, to this savior. He has given four names and titles here. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. What a beautiful title. Wonderful relates to the doing of wonders. That he is someone who will work wonders. 
And Jesus certainly does that. He comes in and breaks into the natural world as something that is supernatural, outside of the natural order of the world, doing things that no human being can do, working miracles. And as he does this, he is a teacher and he is a counselor. Counseling is a significant part of this church. We're trying to kick off a counseling ministry here soon because it's so important that when people have great troubles in their heart, they have someone to ask. People lined up as far as they could get to ask Jesus questions, to take counsel from him. They knew that he had wisdom and they knew that he had an answer to things. But he was a beautiful counselor because he was full of kindness and compassion. He was willing to listen to people. He was willing to hear what they had to say. He was willing to talk to them one-on-one. But when he spoke to them, he spoke with authority and he gave true counsel. You can read about these things in the Gospels now. You can go and read about the words of Jesus and partake of this wonderful counsel as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. But this is the nature of how Jesus will come, how this Messiah will come. He will secondly be a mighty God, which is in contrast to idols and all other gods that are spoken of in the scripture. Isaiah has much to say about the the gods that are worshipped by the people of this world. Having eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, arms that cannot reach out. They have no power, no ability. They are dead. But Isaiah chapter 40, he writes about these things. Isaiah 40, 18, to whom will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Who will we compare to God? There is no comparison. God is not just unique. His power and his authority and his life are without comparison to all others. He is a mighty God. This is the God that is coming. Who else? What else is he called? He is called everlasting father, speaking to the Trinitarian nature. But the everlasting part is important. Everlasting speaks to past, present, and future. No matter when human beings encounter God, There has always been a time when God was before them, but God is always present with them, and he will always be in the future. He is everlasting, past, present, and future, never growing old, never having not been, and will always be in the future. But fourth is a beautiful and treasured title of the Messiah who is yet to come, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. In John chapter 14, Jesus says that he will give us his peace. This prince of peace who is coming, Jesus says so clearly that he will give us his peace and that he will leave his peace with us. And he contrasts it. He says it's not like the peace of the world. The world offers you peace in certain ways, but the peace of Jesus is not like the peace of the world. It wasn't like the peace of the world then or now. 
Because the peace of Jesus, as he says in John 14, is a peace that keeps on expanding and is a peace that surpasses all understanding. We see here in this passage that the peace of Christ Jesus will be an ever-expanding peace. It's a peace that begins in your own heart when you come to salvation with God. As it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the, when we believe in Christ Jesus by faith, we are justified. We're declared not guilty. And when we pass from being declared guilty to not guilty, we have peace with God. We're no longer at odds with God. And when we're no longer at odds with God, we begin a relationship with God. And this peace, this peace of the Prince of Peace, begins in our own heart. But then it begins to work its way out. It works its way out into your marriage if you're married. It works its way out into your family if you have children. It begins to work your way out into your larger family, then into your business. It works its way out in the church. And as we're going to see here, and as we are seeing here with the kingdom of God, it's going to ultimately work its way out into all the world. The peace of God will enter into all the world when Jesus comes back and we have a new heaven and a new earth. It will be a place of peace where justice and peace will rule because Jesus rules. There will be no war in the kingdom of God. He is the prince of peace, beginning his peace by his salvation in our heart and going out from there. The peace of Jesus the Messiah is a full and perfect happiness. It is a calm quietness of the heart and mind that relates to the mighty nature of God and his love to save us. Verse 7, it is expanding and eternal in the nature of the kingdom of God. There are two things mentioned here that I'm going to have to go through quickly uh, because this morning is the Lord's Supper morning. I want to give time to, to uh, the partaking of that. The expanding and eternal nature of the kingdom of God is spoken of through the covenant of David and the eternal nature of Jesus coming. So in these passages, we see in verse 7 that this coming Messiah will be on the throne of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's the beautiful place where God makes a covenant with David. And he says, your throne is always going to be filled and the Messiah is one day going to come on your throne. Your, your throne will last forever. And David really doesn't know what that means. But here, that theme is picked up again, that this Messiah coming is going to come through the throne of David. And we see it again in Matthew chapter 1. We often wonder why genealogies are there in the Bible. But that genealogy talks about 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to exile, and 14 generations from exile to Joseph. Joseph being in the lineage of King David. And Jesus being the, the stepson or the, the earthly son of Joseph. He is in the lineage of King David. It's a, it's a progression that works its way from King David all the way down to the birth of Jesus. That he is the lion of Judah. He is in the line of David. Eternal nature of Jesus and the coming of his kingdom is powerfully emphasized in the book of Daniel. I encourage you to read Daniel chapter 7 if you have time. We don't have time this morning. But it's a vision of the Son of Man coming. And it talks about the eternal nature of his kingdom. And that vision was given to the people while they were in exile. 
So they're given hope during the time of David. They're given hope during the prophetic ministry of Isaiah. They're given hope during exile under the ministry of Daniel. And then hope is fulfilled in Jesus when he comes. But in closing, verse 7, how will this end? How will this be accomplished? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is not based on Isaiah and whether Isaiah is a great prophet or not, or whether we or how the the disciples accomplished what they accomplished or whatever it may be that our responsibility is in the situation, which is always there. What will be accomplished is accomplished by the zeal of the Lord, the passion that the Lord has to carry out his purposes, to not forget his people, to redeem a people for himself, to establish a church, and that the church will then become and grow into the kingdom of God. This is God's work for God's glory. And we have the chance to participate in it, to be a part of what God is doing in the world. I pray this morning that this makes sense to you, that you can see that people long before Jesus were hoping in these things, and that they were fulfilled in Christ Jesus, inaugurated, begun, but not yet completed, and that we are living in the subsequent times after Jesus, but in a time where he has not yet come. And so we are waiting for his second coming, longing for the full completion of these things, that we might enter into the full peace of Jesus Christ and see his face. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for these people. Lord, you are surely a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the prince of peace. And Lord, we love you, and we pray, God, that you will help us to know who you are, help us to follow after you, increase our faith, help us to meditate and dwell on these things, that we might know you more. We love you, we long to serve you, and we pray, God, that your zeal to accomplish your will would be at work in this place and in our time. In Christ's name we pray, amen.